We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And now New Galaxy Broadcasting presents Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, a program addressing the grave challenges to human and citizen rights in America and the rest of the world. How can we, the people of Earth, take back the power and privileges granted to us by God and address so significantly in the Declaration of Independence? Our rights are inalienable, that is, given by God and incapable of being taken away from or given by another. These rights are the basis of liberty, the foundation of all life and happiness. The Coalition of Planetary Empowerment is an organization designed to give its members tools and information to empower them personally, in relationships and in business and employment, but also to give them a voice and the ability to help transform political and corporate governance to support the true needs and desires of people throughout the world. Inalienable and Free focuses on the need for government and corporate business interests to be responsive to the will and desire of their constituents and consumer shareholders. Good morning, planet Earth. This is Johnny Bluestar, host of Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition, sharing my mic today, sharing my mic today with Don Newsom, owner of BBS Radio, from which we broadcast every week. Don has an extremely interesting entrepreneurial background and he applies his skills along with his brother Doug to continually expanding and improving BBS Radio. Hey Don, could you possibly give us um, an update on what's going on in wow. BBS? You bet I could. Good morning to the world. It's a pleasure to be here once again on Inalienable and Free. Thank you very much, Johnny. Um, sure, thank you. Appreciate you. Well, yeah, it's been an eventful week, uh, folks. We lost my last headset. We had about four in the studio, but uh, they go bad at the cords, so I'm on open mic and open speakers. So uh, the audio might be a little ratty. It's not Johnny's fault. It is here in the studio. I'm trying to... Uh, be on a program and normally here in the studio we we don't do things from in the studios we're more remotely uh built for remote engagement and therefore we don't think of these things and when they become necessary like headsets so that we can be on the program without open speakers uh it's less likely to happen so i do apologize for that folks uh hopefully uh you can just um uh you know forgive us for that but updates gosh yeah. johnny there are so mm -hmm. many. We've been we've been growing like a weed. We've added a dozen more shows. We've added. We now have four video shows doing uh, weekly. Um, we just we're going to have uh, on Monday coming. We're going to have John Barber interviewing Alex Jones's wife. That's right. Oh, it's going to be oh, live on video. You will be able to see it on Facebook Live, BBS Radio's uh, webpage over at Facebook. So if you want to hear what Alex Jones's wife has to say, you don't want to miss that program. And that will be on Monday with John Barber, John Barber's World. But, uh, again, a lot of video productions, and that'll be one of them, and there's a lot more coming. We're having a little bit of fun here. Uh, we've finished off all our requirements to air on iHeartRadio. We are obtaining the final, well, not all. There is one final one, and that's uh, an insurance policy. I don't want to get into it, but uh, it's been a couple weeks for us to obtain it, and uh, we're going to narrow that down this week. And next week, we hope to be streaming live through iHeart. might be a week longer, but we're, uh, 
you know, we're uh, getting on them, and it should be fun. So we'll be podcasting and iHeart and streaming live. And, of course, we're streaming live in a lot of places now, Johnny. We're uh, streaming live to places people thought you couldn't stream live. But then I went out of my way to kind of make it happen, and it seems some of them were amiable to it. So all the largest portals in the world that we know of were streaming on live, and all the largest portals in the world were podcasting to. So we get a couple kicks at the cats. Uh, or the cans, <laughs> and uh, we're loving every moment of it. I mean, yeah, new shows and things are heading uh, um, in the right direction. So that's always fun. Thank you for asking. Well, I'm glad to. You know, this it kind of reminds me of the very beginning of of radio and television, also. But in, in the beginning, you know, when it was just really new, because in a certain sense. It's not just the fact that you've greatly expanded the functionality uh, and promotion of of these programs, but it's also the content of these programs and, and the fact that this is kind of a uh, a community for empowering people in, in many different ways from many different points of view. So I find it to be a fascinating new, uh, shall we say, development in, in the history of communications. How's that? Uh, you know, I tend to think you're right. We've been speaking with, uh, you know, some really, um, let's just say, uh, um, highly placed individuals in the media industry uh, and have been for quite a few weeks collaborating with uh, some powerful people. And um, they've said similar things. They're quite amazed at some of the functionality and the things we've been able to accomplish. Um, actually, it's quite stunning. If you ever became a broadcaster or podcaster with us, you'd see what we mean. But um, Well, we I am, and I do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're able to pre-syndicate and pre-market material freely and widely and globally. And then we're able to, uh, you know, double up on those, uh, that informational uh, uh, stuff. Um, so, it, yeah, we have a great system. We're excited. We're adding uh, more functionality to it all the time. But it's becoming a robust critter. Um, it always has been. It's just, uh, hey, I'll toot my own horn. I think we're miles, 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 and miles ahead of the rest. And I think uh, BBS Radio has its own culture. It thrives. It lives. It's That's alive. Right. Well, okay. Well, now we're going to get into the exciting, this exciting show today. Right. <laughs> when I was much younger, probably in middle school, I discovered a book called 1984. Now, 1984 is real popular now, but this was quite some time ago. I don't know how many times I read it, but it was many. To me, it was a very powerful science fiction book laced with the despair and power of a very explicit dictatorship. Since the author George Orwell obviously had a taste for prophecy, he would have to be forgiven for perhaps getting the date somewhat wrong. It is 2018, and we're not yet at that point. But his depiction of a total surveillance state is already here. It has not yet been fully activated, so that the average citizen feels more than the excitement of the ne- more more likely the excitement of the next Netflix series, playing the ever more fantastic video games, or learning, or listening to commercial music designed to keep his mind in deep, in deep uh, deep state of uh, sleep uh, in every move. So, in honor of George Orwell and the time that we're living in. I've taken the liberty of creating the opening of a somewhat updated version of Orwell's idea. Here is the beginning of a new novel, 2084, never to be written in its entirety, but perhaps to manifest in another way, 
unless we wake up. So here goes SP 11, 2084. It was the dead of winter, and although Carl Johnson wanted to check the time, he would have had to remove one of his hands from his pocket to open the panel on his overcoat to access his Z-phone. And it was way too cold for that. The hallway smelt of burnt soybeans, and at one end a colored poster, too large for indoor display, had been tacked to the wall. It was an enormous face outlined with memorably orange-hued hair, an older face, but very vibrant, still somewhat sardonic and condemning in its attitude, like it was laughing at you, but subtly. It was indeed one of those hologram posters that could pick up retinal signals and it could follow you everywhere. It was totally customized for each citizen, and the flickering smile could open quite wide from time to time, but then it could downturn to a frightful frown. Such was the omnipresent image of the founder. Although he was never seen in person, it was said that he was over 150 years old and often appeared on hollow screens, dynamic and well. Johnson made for the stairs. The elevator had been broken for ages. The only elevator he knew of was in his office. Johnson finally reached his floor. He stared at the image in the corner of the hallway, to protect you, I must be everywhere, the caption beneath it ran. On the other posters, the caption was different. The founder's love is everywhere. When he got into his room, he looked outside from the corner and saw an orange surveyor copter from Homeland Maintenance dot between several buildings, undoubtedly checking several people's windows. A tricky maneuver, since the distance between the two buildings could barely accommodate the size of the surveillance craft. But that was the kind of maneuver these pilots were trained for. Behind Johnson, from the hollow screen dominating his front room, he could hear some anonymous narrator babbling about the need for another austerity campaign, as though the meager rations the common worker would have to surrender could somehow save his life and the life of his family, owing to the dispersal of some extra tax dollars taken by the government for his defense. Yes, according to the narrator, these tax dollars would categorically repel future attacks from the Red Front militants. What a ridiculous lie, Johnson thought, though he dared not even think too loudly. According to the news, these Red Front militants always made a very big threat, but never actually attacked anyway. The money probably went somewhere, but not to any kind of defense unit, because who needs to defend against militants who never attack anyone, and maybe don't even exist? Now he pulled out his Z-phone. He knew then that the giant hollow screens in his office and thousands of others could access his ugly small apartment whenever he needed. And now he knew he was not only being surveyed by the little camera in his phone, but the sophisticated apparatus in the hollow screen on the wall. There were tiny holes in its vision in certain areas of the room. Most people wouldn't know that, but despite his role as a transcriptionist, Johnson was trained originally as a VR engineer. By virtue of his training, he found a place or two where he could write in his diary without any scrutiny whatsoever. But aside from tiny spaces in his apartment, there probably was universal surveillance. That's the end of this opening of Salvo to 2084, a novel that will never be written. But I recall this one sentence from the original novel, 1984, where it says, 
You had to live from a habit that became instinct, and the assumption that every sound you made was overheard, and except in darkness, every movement scrutinized. Will this be us? Will this be our? Will will this be how most people are going to live? With the consciousness of the total lack of privacy, with the orange-haired founder looking down at us from posters placed everywhere in a brave new world? What do you think, Don? Think that's possible? Well, if we look at China, we know it is. I mean, it's not only possible, it's happening. Yeah. Right? China's, yeah, China, China is <laughs> and probably... trying to do it now. I think, is it New Zealand or Australia where they're bringing in that facial recognition social system not quite so well almost like a quasi uh uh an offtake of what china's doing um it's interesting yeah we're not going to have much privacy anymore i mean if people are paranoid now uh in the future they better get their uh tinfoil caps on <laughs> yes yes unfortunately um one of the main reasons or purposes of inalienable and free is to help forge the kind of citizen capable of resisting the process of authoritarianization, the conversion of a democratic system to an authoritarian one. In our case, the resistance is mainly through the use of the electoral system. A few programs ago, we quoted from a New York Times article by Amanda Taub titled How Autocrats Can Triumph in Democratic Countries. So I'm going to Give a few quotes from this. Today, the most common way for a democracy to collapse is through the actions of an elected incumbent, not a coup or a revolution. Hugo Chavez, elected to four terms as president of Venezuela, used his time in office to dismantle the institutions of Venezuelan democracy and expand his own authority. President Vladimir V. Putin of Russia has so thoroughly concentrated power in his own hands that many Observers now refer to Russia as an elected dictatorship. And in Turkey, Mr. Erdogan appears to be following that same well-trodden path. Now, in this article that we've been reading, uh, she Amanda points out that how authoritarianism um, show, shows a kind of a deep vulnerability in the democratic system of government. Because once an authoritarian gains power, his incumbency gives him an overwhelming control over his contenders uh, to, in, in terms of uh, influencing further elections. She further points to the writings of Andrea Shedler, a professor of political science in Mexico, who talks about a menu of manipulation to achieve a greater overreach of power. So continuing with the article, techniques like curtailing press freedom, limiting the opposition's ability to campaign and spreading misinformation, enabling incumbents to manipulate outcomes without resorting to easily traceable techniques like ballot stuffing. Mr. Chavez, for instance, systematically revoked the broadcast licenses of media outlets that did not give him friendly coverage in Russia. State-run media lionizes Mr. Putin, who has cracked down on dissent and systematically shut off political opportunities for the opposition. Ilan Svalek, who is a political scientist at Yale, compared the result to a team of seven-foot-tall people playing basketball against the team of five-footers. It's still basketball, he said, but it systematically favors one side over the other. So isn't that interesting, Don? You have democracy as, as sort of a, a perfect vehicle now for authoritarianism in these different countries. Well, you know... To me, I kind of got a different point from it. You know, uh, 
It seems that people, and it comes down to a basic uh, uh, moral concept, and that mm-hmm. is, do the ends justify the means? And a lot of these globalists and people in power tend to believe that they can do whatever they want as long as the outcome is beneficial. And, of course, to whom, right? But that's really the problem we're facing. We're, fa- we're facing a moral um, um, delusion that the ends truly do justify the means, and therefore the journey is never as important as the result. And um, that kind of crazy thinking gets us into a first strike capability. And it will justify it as well. And, um, you know, well, that's it just, not how it justified, I roll. It justified it enough to actually create the, uh, uh, the doctrine of mutually assured destruction, which right. is very close to actually activating it. Exactly. <laughs> with, with how many countries actually agreed to, uh, have agreed to it by having their own, their own arsenal of very deadly weapons that could start a, a global catastrophe or at least a gigantic one and probably... It's between Russia and the United States, an end game. Yeah, no, so anyway, I totally agree. Totally agree yeah. with you. So on one side, okay, you have the authoritarian leader who somehow gains power over dem- through democratic means, but then once elected begins to turn the tables on the system that elected him, and due to the advantage of holding office, begins to transform the government into his plaything. So in this program, we need to look at the personality of the authoritarian and the personality of the citizen who can capitalize who can capitulate to his will, and the personality of the citizen who will not. Remember the stages we've spoken of in our discussion of the prototype of the informed and awakened citizen. One, be informed. Become informed through the best sources of news and information available. Two, question everything, including all the information and relevant events you encounter. Remember, these days you have to question whether the event ever occurred in the first place. Right, Don? Right, that's right. Next one is really important, and we'll discuss it. Check your own biases, but also study the character of others and see how their biases are controlling policy. Ask why. Sometimes there's a clear answer, but now these days we need to look at motivation. There's a great deal of misdirection these days by government, business, and media. They all seem to sometimes be working together. Oh, how could that be? Create better paradigms, ones that, unlike various polarized policies, have beneficial outcomes for all parties, like we were discussing. To do this, at the very least, consult your own conscience, and if possible, seek the answer within from the spiritual resources inside of you. Six, organize and join with others to collectively oversee and petition government, lobby corporations, and demand truth for media. Now, this is something we've discussed and you brought up. Create citizen oversight groups to provide a further check and balance on the government, media, and businesses. Now, in the focus of this program, we'll, we'll focus on step three and step four. Checking your own biases regarding your affiliation with leadership of any kind whom you respect or are suspicious of, and also try to look carefully at what may be their, their biases. Further, try and ask what is the real motivation surrounding events affecting the continuation of democracy, as well as your own motivation in complying with or resisting the direction in question. So we always need to be looking at ourselves. You feel that way, Don? I do. I do. And, um, you know, it's a shame that everybody wants yes men around them, even our current administration. Everybody wants yes men around them, and they all get their own opinion thrown right back at them. And they're not open to other people's opinions. And um, that's unfortunate. 
Yeah, it is. I mean, I you know, the recent story, and I, I don't want to pick on anybody, but, you know, they're in Air Force One, and uh, his wife is, uh, Trump's wife is looking at CNN, and he got really mad at her because everybody in, in the Air Force One is supposed to listen to Fox News. <laughs> so, I mean, that's interesting. Well, how do you do this? How do you actually do this? First, you check your attitude towards leadership. This is somewhat a matter of feeling. Then you check your analysis of that attitude and see if it is fact-based. Now, we don't discredit the value of intuition that can transcend immediate perception. You might have an intuition that something's wrong and have no reason for it, but it might be right. But we need to check out what is fact-based, what is irrational emotion, and what is valued intuition. In this case, uh, is one irrationally afraid of the leadership heading down the road towards authoritarianism? Or is one's confidence in the leader justified by events? What's the, what's the real truth? You have to look inside yourself. Then look at the leader. Just in reference to the aforementioned articles, we could ask, like Chavez, ultimately, when whoever gains office, is the leader challenging the basic institutions of democracy, like the separation of powers? So he might gain control over areas in the government that would generally be denied him. That's like a prelude to actually getting elected and being able to do that, which might not happen immediately but it's the beginning of it during his own first uh, administration or so. How does he look at and address the opposition? Is it calm and rational, basing his criticism on policies and facts, or is it ad hominem, meaning attacking the person? How does he treat the press? Is there any attempt to actually curtail the press or restrict or avoid the press to have access to him? Does he threaten again like Chavez to revoke the broadcast licenses of those media outlets that disagree with him? Does he overly favor specific broadcasts or press or press outlets? What are they? What do they stand for? To be honest, does he spread misinformation himself personally or through third parties? Is he honest? Is there any sign of manipulating media content in his favor through mind control techniques, either through media or directly? Prior to entering government, did he himself show any kind of history of bias towards specific minority groups or institutions? We know one of the ways that would-be dictators create a political base is to define and attack political groups which they intentionally scapegoat to gain a relatively uneducated but passionate following. Personal prejudices, as shown in the past, might give a clue as to the direction his government might take if elected. Does it sound like good questions? They do, but I tend to think, um, you know, that uh, the current administration, even though they're a little bit, they do wear blinders on them, um, you know, they're kind of forced in that position because you're dealing with so much scum that's risen to the top that the swamp is deep. And, uh, you know, if I were Trump, I would be doing quite similar things and I would still feel I was going I was pointing in the right direction as far as so, my moral so, compass. I okay, truly believe. So, I think that. So, so you would, so you would have people who they, are, if they, right. If yeah. the media started the lies and creating fake news in order to justify uh, an overthrow of the government or overthrow of the administration, and it was the media doing it. Remember, it's not the people. You, everybody's getting mixed up and confused. It's, it's just like um, you know when you have. Let's say 80 media outlets all peddling the same poop, and then all the people get on board and think it's reality, and it's not. 
So you've got you've got a climate here of very, very, very corrupt people, and they control the media. And the media is the most important thing to control because it influences people's minds. And we have a radical group of very anti-American people in there and anti-people people in there. So do if well, I were I, Trump, I, just, I, I, would just, be, I would be kicking yeah. them down the road. I'd be smacking them down, and I would be not taking questions from them, removing their press passes and everything else. And it wouldn't be because they didn't agree with me. It would be because they're dishonest liars that are trying to enrage the people with lies. And that is crossing a line I couldn't tolerate. I'd be much well, tougher on okay. the media than he is. And it's not because they're not yes-men, which he, I don't want. And I, and I think uh, President Trump, although he probably likes fewer opinions around him, more around him like his own self, I still think he ha- is a rational human being that does listen to the other sides. He just tends more towards his own. But Okay, again, so can I, can I interject? Sure. So... Would, would he be the person who, uh, this person who's really trying to protect everybody uh, from the outrageous behavior of the media, be the person who promises which we to get to out of... be protected from, by the which, way. Which, which, Don't, which, make which, no uh, mistake would about it. Would he be the person who promises to, uh, to not get into foreign wars and withdraw troops and then goes and invades, for instance, Syria twice without any... Approval well, of Congress. Remember, remember, Syria, who, we all who, know who Syria is well, let me, the most let me important just finish my, my little thing here. <laughs> Would he be the person who advocates drilling most of the most of the water that surrounds the United States, the coastal waters, allow drilling to take place there? Would he be the person who has a four point one billion dollar cabinet who has said he would drain the swamps? Is he the person who has had three of those people drop out because of obvious corruption? Is he the person who who defames people? And, well, good um, question, but he's only been in a year. Give him a little more time yeah, to do well, a little he's more. Managed to, uh, <laughs> ban, he's managed to ban seven, six countries from people coming here when there was no evidence of people coming here and being terrorists. He's managed to take people on asylum who traveled thousands of miles and put separate them from the children, put them in shackles, and not even know where, the, where five right now, five or six of them are. I don't yeah, see I'm why. I'm not quite sure a, about all that. You know, I, well, I, I am. I am sure the things yeah, that I just I, said. I, I don't think I those sure are his policies. Them. I think he's allowing policies that were in place to no. allow the demise of certain policies. No. And when you allow a crackpot on the stage, they're usually going to prove that they shouldn't be there. Same thing with some of these policies. If they're created out of malice, and and they're there by prior administrations, you have to negotiate. And he, you know, I don't know of a man, a better man, that could be at the POTUS of the United States at this time than, uh, than um, President Trump. Because he's exactly what we most of America wanted in there. And he's doing exactly what most of America wanted him to do. Although slower because he's dealing with everybody's Everybody and everybody's well, he, he against him when most, it comes to the media. It's not everybody in America. We love him, but the people that control the media are controlling these minds, the liberal minds and others, and it tends to make a mockery of what the truth really is. So, you know, I mean, we can say a lot of these things. So, and, so I just said, but when a you're bunch dealing with a lying true. group of people, you're Those not going to go out there and tell them your that. battle plan and I say, said, "Hey, I'm going to go not. running over that hill. Make sure you watch me." 
You're not going to tell them your battle plan. You're going to be with them as they are with you. If they're dishonest with you, I mean, if a man's dishonest with me, completely dishonest, and I got to work with them because it's just faded that way, do you think I'm going to let them know my game plan? No. You think think in order to exercise your game plan, you're going to take asylum seekers, put them in shackles, and take away their children, maybe never return? You're coming back around to a point that I don't believe, uh, to something that I don't believe was his intention in the first place. He's rolling with what is... And no, he's that's allowing, completely he's, wrong. He's also allowing certain okay. prior administration policies to stand while negotiating for, a, let's say, a more compatible uh, government with what the people desire. And that's not easy, but he's doing it. It's he's not, not easy. Doing he's it. got, no, he's I got don't, too I don't many. Believe he's... Okay, I'll tell you what, Don. I have to continue with this because okay. we, <laughs> we need to examine this, and it's very fun to fight with you. But um, but let's continue for a while. <clears throat> let's examine this. Let's take a look at another article published in the Swamp Media. It's called How Do Democracies Become Dictatorships, written by Cato Conroy. A dictator, when they first rise to power, will be quick to tell people that they've been aggrieved and cheated out of a good lifestyle by a certain group of people. This unites people under a common enemy, one of the oldest propaganda tactics still in existence. Propaganda is useful and effective, and dictatorships know this. That's why many dictatorships have gone so far as to try to rewrite history or actively brainwash children before they can even read in many cases. They do this to inspire fear in those who want to control, who they want to control. It's known that when people feel angry or scared, they are more likely to give up freedom and overlook clearly unethical behavior from people they believe will protect them. This is why many dictators end up being elected by their own people. So how do democracies become dictatorships? It's often by the hands of the very people who are worried about being oppressed, cheated, or hurt by the government or by whatever boogeyman they were told to hate. I I think that the following article, what was, I'm sorry. Uh, Considering our goal and applying it to our current situation with the government would behoove us to look at what kind of tools and protocol allowed our current administration to gain a sufficient base to help launch them into the presidency and control so much of the most powerful nation on earth. While our country really isn't the kind of super authoritarian dictatorship I described before in the media segment 2084, many think it's on its way. Here's the encyclopedia's definition of authoritarian government. Authoritarianism, principle of blind submission to authority, as opposed to individual freedom of thought and action in government, Authoritarianism denotes any political system that concentrates power in the hands of a leader or a small elite that is not constitutionally responsible to the body of people. Authoritarian dictators often exercise power arbitrarily without regard to existing bodies of law, and they usually cannot be replaced by citizens choosing freely among various competitors in elections. The freedom to create opposition political party or other alternative political groupings with which to compete power with the ruling group is either limited or non-existent authoritarian regimes. The Encyclopedia Britannica also distinguishes between authoritarian governments and totalitarian governments. Authoritarian governments are more centered in the policies of the elite and, and or the dictators themselves than in the ideological oriented policies of totalitarian government. In fact, it could be called anything, a representative democracy, communist republic, or a constitutional monarchy doesn't matter. What matters is the actual behavior of the government, in our case, 
how it, and in our case, how it got there. So let's look at the subtle and not so subtle way a powerful individual can use a certain psychological process to assume the rights of autocratic power, even in a democracy. And incidentally, this is a way that people can gain control over a business or a relationship as well. To scope out this tool, let's look at classical hypnosis, where the power of the hypnotic trance and the suggestion of the hypnotist is very much geared to the subject accepting the will of the hypnotist over and above his own. This is a form of psychological transference, where you transfer your authority, your autonomy, over to another person. Where do we see this in politics? With authoritarian personalities that manage to capture power during a time that the democratic regime still exists. If people are sensitive to the possibility of transference, they can surrender quite a bit and even most of their authority to an individual. And the leaders who understand this will use this knowledge as a weapon to seduce their followers into absolute trust. Although the Clinton administration and its predecessors certainly had factors that challenged equal justice in America on many levels, the real start of our country's visible, visibly conspicuous demise as a democracy began with George W. Bush, specifically after 9-11. It seemed that Obama just continued and expanded that regime in certain ways. But although these administrations directly challenged our human and citizen rights and favored a world of legislation geared to its corporate and billionaire patrons, neither George W. nor Obama were essentially authoritarians in their manner of ruling. They were quieter and acted more rationally as they changed the nature of our protections under the Constitution. But when you start talking about the real authoritarianism, you are talking about real authoritarian leaders such as Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Mao Zedong, Castro, Saddam Hussein, Kim Jong-un, Putin, so forth. So back to being informed and awakened. When you start looking at events with a serious intent, I mentioned you need to question everything. The really difficult question to, to ask yourself is, why are you believing politically what you believe? Are you believing things because of the news? because you are following in the footsteps of your parents, because you belong to a party or organization that is formulating your thoughts for you? Are you transferring your own authority based on your relationship to God and or your own conscience to an individual who claims to have the critical answers? Do you find yourself initially challenged by his direction, but then surrendered to his explanations without really checking the facts? Do you feel yourself feeling differently about objects of his attacks who you trusted previously, like a certain newspaper or a certain congressman, in order to be effective, a charismatic leader will need to accept the gift of those who accept him easily. But he must be able to convert to some, convert others to summon up the power of the people, right or wrong, to choose him as their sanctified leader. Since Obama and Bush are no longer holding the reins of power, I think the next component of our discussion is to look at the present regime and the man who is first and foremost the center of attention in media and, and look unflinchingly at this incredible phenomena, unprecedented in American history. I've heard strangely many people look at Trump in a way that he characterizes himself, for instance, draining the swamp. This message appeals to his voters. This is difficult to, under, this is difficult to understand in my mind, to why he's chosen a cabinet filled with people who seem to come out of the swamp, who wholeheartedly wanted downsize or dramatically alter the historical purpose and nature of their departments, who often come from enormous wealth and seem to be insensitive to the ordinary people. And so far, three of them, I believe, have been had to leave because of corruption. But whatever the reason, it appears to be a $43.3 billion cabinet and dragged quite efficiently out of the swamp. That is, of course, my opinion. But for his base, the policies he owns, he holds, seems filled with good intentions and serves their need. 
even for the evangelist who must live with some of his apparent departures from Christian behavior in the, in the past so critically condemned, as in the Clinton challenges, it is interesting to see that his followers can overlook these elements to see the essentially righteous man. And in a certain way, he respects them above all, the, all for their loyalty. Let's take a closer look. This is what he says about his followers, N76. The people, my people are so smart. And you know what else they say about my people? The polls. They say, I have the most loyal people. Did you ever see that? Where I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? It's like incredible. <laughs> no, they say, Trump, we love you too, man. Trump's voters are by far, you know, the, uh, I'm at 68, 69%. I'm at 90% total. Like, will you stay? Absolutely. I think it's 68 or 69%. Will you most likely stay? That gets into the 90s. Other guys are like a 10 a guy like Jeb Bush, he has a nobody, but he's like, at, at not, I mean, like, they don't have people. They have nothing. Uh, Rubio, soft. They're all, all soft. All soft. My people stay. Uh, by the way, Cruz, soft. Even if you don't take this literally, and you shouldn't, this should tell you something about the special card he owns, a fanatical belief in Trump by his followers. Even if he wouldn't shoot someone, would they tolerate his lying or deceiving them? Would they care about those... He has chosen to hurt if they fit into their pre-accepted biases. Doesn't look like it. Well, I know I had my little say for a little while. You can have yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you're, again, um, is he an authoritarian? He is. I mean, look at the way he's run his company and uh, the way, uh, it, well, his entire life, basically, where he's been the authoritarian. But that's what we needed. That's what we needed in there. We needed somebody who had a strong inner core and had a good principle, good integrity, and had a good moral compass. And I believe he has all of those things. And wow. I, I mean, if you really studied the, those different elements that you just talked I about? I believe like he's corruption. a showboatman. He, you know, look, I used to be in promotion and showboating and dog and pony shows and having to keep a smile on my face constantly, which when I went to bed hurt my face. I mean, I've had to do all that sort of stuff. I understand what he's trying to do. You know, he's got to play a lot of roles as the president, and I think he's doing it extremely effectively. And I think, thank God, thank God, he's our president, because if we would have went with her, quote, unquote, we would have been in so much jeopardy, this country wouldn't have been recognizable at this point. So I'm extremely happy with the way things played out. I think the economy is going in the right direction. I think the people are starting to wake up much more than they used to in the past, and and bec and the dark seeds that that preceded him tried to keep that all under wraps. That's all coming out now, and I and I, I just bless Trump for that. So well, you know, I'll tell you what, because because uh, uh, because I have promised that you could have your say. Uh, <laughs> I I'm very happy to hear that you are a, a very dedicated person to Trump and we'll see what you how you do in the next few programs and uh, but right now let's take a break from ourselves <laughs> yeah. C16 right. and K KEB5 This is Johnny Blue Star CEO of New Galaxy Enterprises a media content development company if you need an article for the web for a magazine or a newspaper I have wide experience in researching and developing articles 
on numerous types of topics, including articles for a newsletter I developed in the barter industry and another for a commercial spacecraft. I've acted as a reporter and advertising consultant for various newspapers in Tulsa and Palm Springs, but also developed the first comprehensive internet newspaper for Coachella Valley, California. To learn more about New Galaxy, see samples of our work, or talk to us about your project, please go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com and fill out the contact form. Patriots Act is a Brent Marks legal thriller written by Kenneth Eade, a novelist and attorney, often appearing on Threshold Radio. It's about Ahmed, a naturalized U.S. citizen, formerly of Iraq, who was sent to Guantanamo Bay detention camp with no real knowledge of a crime he has committed. Brent Marks, a California attorney, is originally hired by Ahmed's wife to fight for his release. The novel opens with a convincing mock execution, a mode of torture meant to break down a prisoner in a brutal and traumatic way that foreshadows Ahmed's actual death in the hands of his accusers. Ahmed felt the butt of the rifle strike his spine as his knees buckled and he hit the floor. Move faster, Haji. Up against the wall. Stop there. Good. Listen up. My name is Sergeant Brown. You're here because you refuse to cooperate in interrogations. The decision has been made to execute you by firing squad. Wait, I'm an American citizen. Ahmed felt the black bag rip from his head and for the first time faced his aggressors. He found himself facing a man in camouflage fatigues, holding an M16 to his chest. Beside him, an eight-man firing squad with their rifles in ready position. I have the right to talk to an attorney. This is all a big mistake. Brown fastened a leather strap around Ahmed's waist, pinning his spine to a wooden post. Yeah, a big mistake. You should have cooperated when we asked you about your superiors in Al-Qaeda. I don't know anyone in Al-Qaeda. <laughs> do you have any last statement, Haji? But I... I repeat, do you have any last statement? I'm not a terrorist. I'm an American citizen. I have a right to a lawyer and a trial. You've denied me these rights. You will answer to God for your crimes. I think you can see who has all the rights here. Ready? And... The eight pointed their rifles at Ahmed. Shivering uncontrollably, Ahmed's knees gave way, and he hung on the post like a man crucified. Fire! The deafening explosion of the eight rifles was the last thing Ahmed heard. He felt the bullets hit his flesh, and his body crumpled forward, hanging lifelessly from the post like a scarecrow. At one point, some of, some of us must uh, ask, could this leadership play a part in changing a democracy to an authoritarian government? Let's look at another type of organization that seems to regularly favor charismatic leaders and ask ourselves, how can, we, how can an authoritarian leader and his following be compared to a religious cult? We quote from our last show. In that show, we mentioned the value in cultivating power from a base who has a current inherent bias against certain minorities, religious, ethnic, political, etc. To empower that bias with laws and dedicated enforcement against that minority will greatly empower that base. In this context, we call these victims scapegoats. And acquiring the power to obtain the base by scapegoating is a powerful tool to overthrow a a democracy, but scapegoating is in the political world, which can eventually push ordinarily behaved people into realms of unbelievable cruelty and indifference to the suffering of their victims, 
usually demands more than the bias. It usually demands a kind of charismatic leader who in a certain way wins the soul of his followers. In a religious cult, it is quite typical that anyone challenging the cult or its leadership is anathema. The cult will try to restrict any outside sources of information. Let, let us more closely look at the psychological foundations of this change in the followers of such a leader. When you've been solicited by a religious cult, there are various steps involved in your developing relationship to the cult. The ultimate goal of the cult is to make you totally responsive to its leadership and its protocols. The first step in joining a religious cult is typically when you have to make a decision because you've found an organization that can help you with your problem. And that decision is serious and felt as deeply needed to make, often because you have found something that might relieve your extreme personal suffering, whether it's business, a failure in business, a broken relationship, loss of a job or loved one, or various other factors. So you turn yourself over to someone else's authority, usually directly or indirectly, the leader of the cult. After you join, this may come somewhat later, you learn that if you don't continue on this path, there can be severe consequences if you ever leave the cult. For instance, you can go straight to hell or something similar. You can lose your dearest friends and family that, live, that are in the cult, maybe forever. You will lose touch with the special cosmic calling that makes you stand in the elite who are apart from the rest of struggling humanity, a place of wealth and power from which you will be formally excommunicated or expelled from the community, shamed if you like, before the people and community you've believed in so long. Then often there is the third element. You are asked to believe in something that really goes beyond ordinary proof. You commit yourself to something based on the belief of the cult leadership, which is so often controlled by one super authoritarian leader. Soon you see yourself believing in anything you are told. This is the kind of following an authoritarian leader wants, the very opposite of what Madison and Jefferson wanted for citizens of democracy. It is the ideal way to, to use the power of voting to change very fundamental things in political environment. So at this point, you are basically putting the leader before your own conscience and intelligence and are putty in their hands. They should shoot somebody. They could shoot somebody and you might not blink an eye. It's happened before. To give you a clearer example of how a cult works, I've interviewed Pierre S. Freeman, an occult whistleblower and author of The Prisoner of San Jose, How I Escaped from Roscarusian Mind Control, and Amorth, the hidden mind control techniques of the Roscarusian orders. So my friend here is uh, Pierre is from Haiti, and he has a little bit of an accent, but let's listen to him, and uh, it's, it should be very interesting to people. That's well, INT-1. Pierre S. Friedman, an author and uh, a student of a very important subject, which is called religious cults. Pierre has had a long association with a certain cult, an author and uh, a student of a very important subject, which is called religious cults. Pierre has had a long association with a certain cult, which he's written about and we'll discuss briefly, which has given him an insight, I think, to a much more general understanding of how cults work. And to that end, he's studied many different books and has spoken to many different people about different sorts of cults communicated with them. And uh, so welcome to our show. Good morning. Tell us a little bit about your association with Amok. I was a member of Amok for 25 years, from 1981 to 2008, almost 25 years. And what Amok does is the organization has a special way their practice is different from the other cult organization out there. 
because your whole mind control technique or manipulation is something that is done to you right in your home sanctum. There is no person-to-person -person contact, but they are able to control and manipulating you by controlling your time and your sleep cycle and everything in between. So in a sense, in a short period of time, if you get to be indoctrinated by Amok, you can consider yourself to be taken because they're literally taking over your life. Well, one of the things about Amok that I know is that there are opportunities to meet together for some of the people who are involved. Just like in political situations, although most of it is coming through the online or through broadcasting or from reading things, uh, there's occasional opportunities to go to, say, a rally or something, right? But the, the, the bulk of the uh, effect of who's ever uh, involved as a leader is still mainly through the media, right? Or through books or through some other kind of uh, literature. Amok is really a combination of all of these. First, there is opportunities for members to meet. The, the, their meeting location is usually called a lodge or chapter or ponios. Even though Amok is, does not officially require that members join these groups, but they have a special way of enticing members or coerce them into joining their groups. The groups for Amok, Collage or Chapter of Ponios, they are all exactly like you would in any other cultic organization. This is a place where all the members are specially trained at brainwash or trained at providing to newcoming members something they call love bombing. At your first visit, you will be very impressed by how loving everyone is to you. And you would not realize it's part of the game of Amok to entrap and manipulate you. In addition to these meetings, Amok also use books or monographs. The monographs are set of instructions they set to the member to study on a weekly basis. But based on the amount of exercises that members are enticed to do on a daily basis, this monograph literally take off you and consume your entire time day and night. Well, let me ask you this. How, just in briefly, could you tell us why you became involved with Amorc? Just give us a, you know, a little bit of that information. Now, first approach to Amorc, Amorc promotes itself as an organization which is combating or fighting superstitious belief. Being from Haiti, superstition is part of every Haitian everyday's life. So an organization like, like AMOC will absolutely be very attractive, very enticing to any Haitian, thinking it is a way for you to get rid, to get rid of superstitious belief, which is part of the Vodou practice in Haiti. But in reality, AMOC itself is a superstitious organization, but they do it in such a slick way, by the time you are fully brainwashed, you forgot that you are running away from superstition, or at least you don't realize you're being trained to become more superstitious. The difference is... Am I correct in thinking that uh, part of the lure of Amorc is the lure of prosperity and personal happiness because you can attract all those things to yourself uh, through the power of Amorc? Absolutely. One of the privileges that seems to be given to members of Amorc is that when you need a job, you're going for a job interview, you are trained to have the power to take over the mind of the person which is going to be interviewing you. And so you can technically give that person the order to hire you. 
Of course, with this point of view, any member will find it to be easier to train, spend more time in our mock so you can master the art of controlling order of your thought rather than spend time training yourself to have proper skills to have a job. Well, uh, another thing that I wanted to ask you about is, and I, this is really, I think, an important component. What is the real problem if you were to leave, according to Amorc's ideology, what is the real problem of you leaving Amorc? What happens? Why are people afraid to leave? Why do they stay there? Amok has a concept called egregore. Amok's in, on the surface tell members you are free to leave, but deeply inside they make it their most central thinking process. The egregore of Amok is a force. That is, when you are part of that egregore, you are protected against anything that can be going wrong in the world. Even if you live in a high crime location, when you, this egregore is watching over you, you can be feel safe and protected. But if you do leave Amok, you technically you're free to leave, but be careful. If you leave, you lose the protection of the egregore. Well, also another point, I think that's really important because one of the reasons that people don't leave cults is because something serious could happen to them. Maybe it's just the loss of uh, uh, friends in a community, but it can also be something devastating, like losing the, the, the power of God, which is sort of like the, losing the power of the egregore. Now, there's another element. I think that in most of religious cults, there's a point where you basically give over your reason and you begin to believe things that have nothing to do with, with any provable reality. And so... Uh, you get into sort of a fantasy world where you have lo really lost touch with the real world and you are basically totally involved in their world. What kind of a thing, would, would, what, what kind of beliefs did you uh, appropriate at some point that were like that, that were really irrational and you had no proof for? In Amok, there is a technique called testing. In other words, if you go and make the wrong turn and you fall into a dish, it's because Amok is testing you. Because Amok has a concept in addition to the Gregor called the invisible masters. So at every single moment of your life, you know, the Amok invisible masters are watching over you. You do good, they'll protect you. You do not comply. That's when you're criticizing or judging Amok. You lose the protection of the masters. And these masters become very real to you, right? I mean, even Absolutely. though... In your mind, but they are as real as you are talking face to face with anyone. In fact, one of the exercises of, or exercises of Amok is to train you not only to make contact with the masters when you are in the meditative state, but you can simply for a split second, while at a bus stop sitting, for example, waiting for the bus, you make contact with the masters. Another thing that I want to talk to, because we don't have much more time, is tell me the role of the, of the leader the Imperator. Is that important in your understanding of the binding that you had to Amorc? According to Amorc, the connection go God, then the invisible masters, and the visible masters. From an Amorc point of view, the Imperator is one of the same masters club, but this one is the visible master. Even though you see all the different activities going on in terms of who is going to be the next Imperator, but the belief is that the Imperator is appointed by the Invisible Masters. 
So you come to consider the masters live or dead as the real master and the imperator being one of these masters. How far do you think people... I know that AMORC really isn't, it isn't really what you call a political or terrorist organization. It's not that sort of thing. It's a more inbred thing where they, they, they go ahead and collect money from their members and they try to expand their group. But how far do you think people would go for the sake of, of being ordered to do something by the Imperator? Do you think that there's a, a danger there? Is, is, for there is a danger, for sure there is, but it's hard to tell how far people will go. Because once you, in brain, you are brainwashed, the whole process is in your mind. If you perceive, for example, certain people shouldn't be in charge of the world, and you perceive what you think the masters tell you should be the right person to be in charge of the world, that's who should be in charge of the world, you never know what someone would be willing to do to fulfill his cosmic mission. Because whatever you do, as long as in you, from an Amok point of view, as a member of Amok, you are doing it for the best of the world. So te- in theory, someone can actually kill someone and think they are doing it simply to make the world a better place. It's doing your cosmic mission. So Amok is no different from any of the other, of the other cult, cults creating violence in the world. Except in Amok, you don't see it, maybe don't talk about it, and if maybe ever done something wrong to please or fulfill their cosmic mission, Amok requires they keep silence because if you speak, then you lose the protection, the benefits of the Grand Masters that will be given to you for absolutely accomplishing your duty. So you have a tremendous charismatic leader, and basically his function in general is to keep you in the cult and keep you basically brainwashed and to do things that uh, serve the, particularly the financial interests of the cult. Is that correct? Absolutely. That's a pretty good, good summary. Well, thank you so much for uh, this discussion. Uh, I hope we'll have more because I think there's a great analogy between political cults and the cults that are, that are essentially classify themselves as religious or spiritual cults. Thank you so much, Pierre. You're welcome. Goodbye, sir. We'll see you soon. <laughs> Let me, let's see now. Let's continue to try and show the connection between authoritarian leadership and the psychology behind the attempted and successful reinterpretation and inversions of so many of our principles of government. For the moment in this program, we're going to explain how one specific tool has a fundamental role in creating this inversion. To truly be an informed citizen that Jefferson indicated was the very core of a working democracy. You certainly need to be aware and capable of identifying the tools used to deflect and distort your thinking. The ability to mislead another person, human being does not depend on their intelligence or normally held principles. It depends on their susceptibility to being misled emotionally and intellectually. If you are a charismatic leader, you can control the information you receive by branding outside the outside information as toxic. This is very common in cults that generally discourage or forbid their followers when looking at literature or information outside of cult doctrine. Of course, in our current situation, the president rails against fake news. Recently, he chided his wife, as we mentioned before, for watching CNN on Air Force One when he had ordered everyone to watch Fox News and nothing else. As we mentioned, we will be focusing on scapegoating, but also mentioning the value of a, the values of a charismatic leader to carry off this approach. One of the highly notable features of a charismatic leader, whether it's in a church or religious cult or a political organization, is his manner of speech. 
In politics, his speech is calculated to catch the attention and sympathy of his base, potential followers at first and later voters and supporters. His negative psychology often involves a kind of oratory, one that can influence the chosen audience. No doubt, Trump's manner of public speaking varies greatly from the norm. Here's a linguistics expert discussing Trump's way of speaking, N77. Let's agree for the sake of the next conversation that Donald Trump uses the most colorful language of any president, at least in the modern era, and says some of the most questionable things. And that is where our next guest comes in. John McWhorter is a linguist. He has a Ph.D. in the field. He teaches at Columbia, and he has written extensively, and he, too, is colorful when talking about Donald Trump and specifically how this president talks. That's why we talked about it with John McWhorter. Professor, thank you for joining us. Uh, thank you, Brian. I've been wanting to ask you, what is your linguistics definition uh, of this president? <laughs> Donald Trump linguistically is unadorned. This is the basics. This is what language was undoubtedly like when it first emerged among people who didn't have writing and were first getting their verbal sea legs. This is where it started. And so in that way, as in so many others, Donald Trump is an original. That would mean that education and schooling has had no effect on his use of language, he's quick to remind us that he went to the best schools. Mm -hmm. And he learned nothing in them. He speaks like someone who paid no attention to one of the goals of education, which is to refine our natural inborn proclivities of speech, which are great for casual circumstances. But he uses those same ways of speaking in what most of us used to consider formal and important circumstances. I think in your line of work, they call it a tag. When something is added to the end of the traditional sentence, so often he will tag a sentence with, believe me, believe me, an enforcer, something he thought was lacking in the original sentence. Mm -hmm. It's that he's reinforcing, and also he's using oral speech, where what we're always doing is we're checking to see that the other person understands what we're saying, that they're in the same boat that we are. So that's what you know is. That's what things like LOL can be in texting. He does that too, but once again, it's not in texting. He's doing it in formal circumstances, which means that he never leaves the realm of the casual when he speaks, which is unlike even, say, indigenous societies, where there's no such thing as reading or writing yet. There's always a high way of talking and a low way of talking. The chief doesn't just get up and run his mouth. Ours does. Um, there's a friend of our broadcast, Eli Stokels, who uh, works for the Wall Street Journal, who has covered him now for some time and says about Donald Trump, there are visual and audio tells that he peppers his speech with, where if you know what's coming, you know what's coming. I want to run a, a montage of a Trump phrase, people don't know. And uh, in Eli Stokel's reading of it, people don't know for Donald Trump means I just learned. Here's the examples. <laughs> France is America's first and oldest ally. A lot of people don't know that. Our first Republican president, Abraham Lincoln, ran his first campaign for public office in 1832. Great president. Most people don't even know he was a Republican, right? Does anyone know? A lot of people don't know that. People don't realize we are an unbelievably divided country. But now I have to tell you, it's an unbelievably complex subject. Nobody knew that health care could be so complicated. 
So, you're laughing, why? Well, that aspect of him, I can't say anything particularly linguistic about it. It's because he has this need to be the alpha male. That business of most people don't know this is coming from that same well. The idea is that he's always the one who's one step ahead. And in that, frankly, I don't find him linguistically challenged as much as just somebody who's rather oddly adolescent for somebody who's a senior citizen. I'm going to uh, take a little bit of a break from our conversation uh, just to point out that obviously uh, Don and I have different points of view, which is something that I uh, greatly like in this program. And uh, some people may not like it because uh, they may actually believe what I believe. <laughs> <laughs> well, my twin brother believes what you believe in, in uh -huh. large part. We... we uh, we are quite opposite in our thinking in many respects, and in some respects we're the same. But my twin brother uh, has a lot more open-mindedness when it comes to politics than I do. Uh, he, again, he'll fit more into your camp than I would, and we both run this network. We are partners in BBS Radio, and we argue a lot. We emote a lot. You know, the arms start flying, the spittle starts uh, coming out of the face, and, you know, we're just all twisted. And we go back and forth like that, and we can do that for hours until we finally get fed up with each other and we turn around and walk the other way. But it's nice not to have a yes man working with you. It's, it's, it's absolutely, even though we were brought up together, we have totally diverse opinions on many, many of these political matters. And uh, Doug is not the hardcore, let's say, Republican, Libertarian that I am. He has his own views. They're a lot more open. Um, but again, you know, we're talking about my views right now, so you're getting the full gamut of pain, pain, Well, Well, pain. you know, it's the criteria <laughs> that I have... It's the machine. <laughs> the cri... <laughs> The criteria that I have is really based on the, you know, the phrase from the Declaration. And I find that both sides, oh, let me give you an example. Uh, okay, so a liberal would like welfare, right? I mean, in a stereotype way, we'd say that. And, right, right. And, and someone who's a, a, a conservative would be against it. Well, I look at what the Johnson administration did, you know, so people are having babies to get wel welfare. Well, I totally think that's disgusting. I mean, that's terrible. Uh, that's making your kids slaves, but they're not slaving. They're just sitting at home watching television with you. Then the other side of it is to, to take people who are really seriously disabled or can't work or for some reason and just letting them, you know, die or have tremendous, horrible problems. And I don't believe in that either. But I, um, I don't want that to happen. But so what is the, the solution? Now, one of the solutions that you and I both have talked about is prom having the government promise you a job, right? Remember? Well, you know, I think, I think that one of the main reasons government should be there would be to help you find a job. I mean, to be quite honest, that should be something, instead of the social programs and the welfare, they should actually put that money into helping you. Well, become... you, you agree with me that there are certain oh, people yeah. who simply can't work. I mean, Absolutely. But, but aside from that, I think that that, goes, that, uh, that solution goes broader than just welfare or non-welfare. It goes into people who need a job. 
Oh, it uh, goes into education, healthcare, and everything else the yeah, government it, it provides. Has a, to be quite it honest. is yeah. completely different. It's a different concept. It's not middle of the road, which would be somewhat more, you know, uh, welfare. Sounds like you're trying to come up with a new word, like uh, what is that new word? Oh, right, democratic socialism. A terrible word. Right. Really, I, I, okay. Good. Really okay. We agree the, on that. Great. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it really democratic socialism is just. It's just another word for what I would call, uh, you know, it's a taking combination all your of money. Plan. Taking all the your money and giving it to whoever I want, right? <laughs> you know, so, right. Um, well, anyway, getting back to our discussion here about uh, your friend and uh, my friends, our president. Uh, continual repetition, communicating one's uniqueness and supremacy over others complimenting his audience on specialness and supremacy over other people, downgrading insulting the opposition, addressing an uneducated audience in a very casual way. All these are hallmarks of Trump's speech. The casual way he talks is comfortable um, to people without an advanced degree or uh, advanced degree in education and a certain economic class and a highly aggressive condemnatory, even violent attitude towards his detractors and targeted minorities is pleasing to them because of their biases. But there is another hallmark, and that is fear. A strong assertion there are terrible things that are about to happen that must be stopped. And guess who's causing it? Here's Van Jones reacting to one of uh, Trump's general election speeches. That's N78. Let's listen to this. I came in at night with an open heart. I think you saw that. I was prepared to hear him do something extraordinary and never underestimate the power of a single speech to, taint, to turn a country around. Ivanka was beautiful. She gave a general election speech. If you have a pulse, if you have a functioning brainstem, you should have been saluting Ivanka Trump. His friend who tried to humanize him did a beautiful job. But what Donald Trump did tonight is a disgrace. Uh, that was a relentlessly, even for Donald Trump, who at least occasionally breaks up the, the fear mongering with, with some jokes, with some asides, some amusement. He had one funny line in an hour and 15 minutes, and the rest of it was just a relentlessly dark speech. He was describing some Mad Max America. I work in some of the toughest neighborhoods and some of the toughest communities in this country, and I don't know what he's talking about when he describes the country he's talking about. And there was some schizophrenic, psychopathic attempt to pull apart the Obama coalition, but from a political point of view, he even botched that. He says, he reaches out to the LGBT uh, community, and he says, foreign uh, ideologies that hate you, I'm against it. But the domestic ideologies that hate you, apparently for because they're all in his platform. He says he's gonna reach out to uh, African Americans and, 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 and deal with their economic pain. It's hard, Anderson, to get a job if you're in a community that's over-policed and you have a criminal record. And every other leader in the country on both sides of the aisle have talked about criminal justice. He didn't. But this, I, I, I am, I, I'm actually, I've never felt this way in my life. I have read in history, being in moments where there's some big authoritarian movement and some leader that's rising up, and I felt that way tonight, and it was terrifying for me. This, this speech divided the country. You're either inspired by this or you're terrified by it. I'm terrified by it. I'm terrified by it. The word psychology is derived from logos in Greek that can be translated account and psyche, which can be translated as soul. So psychology is a science 
which gives us a, a, an account of the soul, supposedly. And for our purposes here, we'll postulate both negative and positive psychology. Here, our idea of positive psychology is very much connected to a certain spiritual interpretation of human life, which bears on the concept of the soul as a component of the greater field, field of divine or spiritual consciousness. We might say that at the core of positive psychology is the idea of truth. And with that, we're going to take another break, and we will go back to our discussions in a moment. So that would be C2 and C0. Galaxy Enterprises is a California corporation specializing in the creation of media and promotional content. We are focused on original, innovative projects that are good for humanity. These projects could be nonfiction books or novels, fictional screenplays or documentary content, websites and website content, commercial advertising content for print, audio or video products on the internet, television or radio, musical scores for advertising, television or film, video, audio editing, etc. We want to promote products and projects that support the environment, encourage a healthy experience in living, developing, nurturing and useful technology and offering platforms for positive, socially constructive entertainment or informative, transformative media. Our experience in creating a variety of products like this is rather vast and we offer client-based and collaborative products, as well as the opportunity of active investors to join us in the creation and promotion of proprietary products, some of which are in latter stages of development. For more information, go to www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. That's www.NewGalaxyEnterprises.com. If you're interested in talking to us, just fill out the contact sheet and we will get back with you. Are you confused about so much information on health issues? Do you find it hard to trust the sources of conflicting advice? Try Dr. Rodier's newsletters and blogs based on the latest information published in the best medical and nutritional journals. There's no charge for subscribing. Just log on to hugorodier.com. That's H-U-G-O-R-O-D-I-E-R.com to do so or to download Dr. Rodier's latest publications. Negative psychology is basically a psychology of the lower self or ego, that part of the human personality that is detached from the divine presence. The core component of negative psychology is illusion, illusion fueled by self-aggrandizement and a sense of superiority, counterbalanced often with a tremendous lack of self-esteem and self-hatred, aggressiveness and helplessness, a desire to win at every cost, a sense of total hopelessness. Whereas positive psychology is defined as a very consistent, unified approach to life, negative psychology is extremely polarized. A tyrant or dictator can appear to be positive, but his fear-based pro projections of alleged realities that must be addressed are often disturbingly false, and his solutions often target the innocent, a device used to aggregate his base. In fact, true low self-esteem is often the fact that that generates the public self-aggrandizement and inflated ego that characterizes his behavior. Let's take a break from all this. In the case of the United States, as in many others, one of the key methods of manipulation is to create fear in the hearts and minds of potential and active voters and then present solutions that compromise citizen and human rights out of supposed necessity. These solutions like surveillance, unlimited detention, abridging rights to an attorney make the entire population vulnerable to ironclad control by the state which is in, exists now in our, in our country. To do that, the leader should find or create certain objectionable traits in a designated minority, religious, ethnic, 
political, etc., often a small, relatively small component of the uh, entire population and generalized objectionable trait, their objectionable trait to fit most members of that population, and then execute policies and regulations against them. These people are called scapegoats. Here's a familiar core example of a transition between democracy and authoritarian, which utilized the Jewish population as the chief target, but also choosing to target Catholics, homosexuals, fraternal orders, etc. And 80. How did Adolf Hitler, a tyrant who orchestrated one of the largest genocides in human history, rise to power in a democratic country? The story begins at the end of World War I. With the successful Allied advance in 1918, Germany realized the war was unwinnable and signed an armistice ending the fighting. As its imperial government collapsed, civil unrest and worker strikes spread across the nation. Fearing a communist revolution, major parties joined to suppress the uprisings, establishing the parliamentary Weimar Republic. One of the new government's first tasks was implementing the peace treaty imposed by the Allies. In addition to losing over a tenth of its territory and dismantling its army, Germany had to accept full responsibility for the war and pay reparations, debilitating its already weakened economy. All this was seen as a humiliation by many nationalists and veterans. They wrongly believed the war could have been won if the army hadn't been betrayed by politicians and protesters. For Hitler, these views became obsession, and his bigotry and paranoid delusions led him to pin the blame on Jews. His words found resonance in a society with many anti-Semitic people. By this time, hundreds of thousands of Jews had integrated into German society, but many Germans continued to perceive them as outsiders. After World War I, Jewish success led to ungrounded accusations of subversion and war profiteering. It cannot be stressed enough that these conspiracy theories were born out of fear, anger, and bigotry, not fact. Nonetheless, Hitler found success with them. When he joined a small nationalist political party, his manipulative public speaking launched him into its leadership and drew increasingly larger crowds. Combining anti-Semitism with populist resentment, the Nazis denounced both communism and capitalism as international Jewish conspiracies to destroy Germany. The Nazi party was not initially popular. After they made an unsuccessful attempt at overthrowing the government, the party was banned and Hitler jailed for treason. But upon his release about a year later, he immediately began to rebuild the movement. And then in 1929, the Great Depression happened. It led to American banks withdrawing their loans from Germany, and the already struggling German economy collapsed overnight. Hitler took advantage of the people's anger, offering them convenient scapegoats and a promise to restore Germany's former greatness. Mainstream parties proved unable to handle the crisis, while left-wing opposition was too fragmented by internal squabbles. And so, some of the frustrated public flocked to the Nazis, increasing their parliamentary votes from under 3% to over 18% in just two years. In 1932, Hitler ran for president, 
losing the election to decorated war hero General von Hindenburg. But with 36% of the vote, Hitler had demonstrated the extent of his support. The following year, advisors and business leaders convinced Hindenburg to appoint Hitler as chancellor, hoping to channel his popularity for their own goals. Though the chancellor was only the administrative head of parliament, Hitler steadily expanded the power of his position. While his supporters formed paramilitary groups and fought protesters in the streets, Hitler raised fears of a communist uprising and argued that only he could restore law and order. Then, in 1933, a young worker was convicted of setting fire to the parliament building. Hitler used the event to convince the government to grant him emergency powers. Within a matter of months, freedom of the press was abolished, other parties were disbanded, and anti-Jewish laws were passed. Many of Hitler's early radical supporters were arrested and executed along with potential rivals. And when President Hindenburg died in August 1934, it was clear there would be no new election. Disturbingly, many of Hitler's early measures didn't require mass repression. His speeches exploited people's fear and ire to drive their support behind him and the Nazi party. Meanwhile, businessmen and intellectuals wanting to be on the right side of public opinion endorsed Hitler. They assured themselves and each other that his more extreme rhetoric was only for show. Decades later, Hitler's rise remains a warning of how fragile democratic institutions can be in the face of angry crowds and a leader willing to feed their anger and exploit their fears. So to look at this more carefully, there was a great deal of anti-Semitism in Germany before the collapse of the Weimar Republic, but it wasn't anywhere near the proportions it grew to after Hitler took over the reins of power, the ultimate con consequences being genocidal in nature. The economic collapse was provoked by the extraordinary war reparations invoked against Germany, which led the Republic to print money to repay those reparations. I think a big mistake was, was uh, that degree of reparations. This led to hyperinflation and the collapse of the economy. Against this backdrop, Hitler began to, his quest for power, targeting the Jews for economic problems of the German people, at one point framing an innocent man for starting the Reichstag fire, which allowed Hitler to gain supreme power in Germany by being moved upwards from being second in command as, as chancellor. Well, <clears throat> at some point we are going to uh, have another challenging show. In coming shows, we're going to focus on more, more of the specifics of building a base that would pave the way for an authoritarian government. Until that time, before we jump on anyone else's gravy train, whether a business offer, offer an overture of friendship by someone we don't know or a political decision, maybe we should take a good look in the mirror and say, hey, maybe I should check out all this before I do anything. After all, from my favorite quote from Socrates, the unexamined life is not is not worth living. And as we're leaving the end of our program, here's a quote from the unpublished but very intriguing book, The Bible of Self-Awareness, by Don and his brother Doug. To neglect, omit, or put ourselves before another is to neglect the greater part of ourself, for we are indeed one. Congratulations on that one. Well, thank you very much. We are. I mean, ultimately, that's uh, that's the fact. <laughs> well, we're going to uh, take leave now. 
the song Misty was originally written in 1954 as a jazz instrumental by a pianist, Errol Garner. When Johnny Mathis heard the instrumental, he asked Garner to provide him with lyrics, and after recording it, it became his signature song. The song was later played in the film Play Misty for Us, a low-budget film, which became a box office hit. Everybody has, has sung the song in, in the past. I saw the film, in fact, years ago, and it was a suspense thriller. It wasn't too bad. It was low budget, yeah, but you didn't notice it because it was, a, it, was, it was scary enough. But anyway, the song itself is extremely beautiful and touching for anyone who's ever been in love. And after our official goodbyes, we will go out with Patricia Welch's wonderful rendition of the, this remarkable song. I want to thank you, Don, from the bottom of my heart for daring to... Uh, to appear on my program and try and uh, completely change my mind about everything. And I hope that I've made every effort to do the same for you. And I am rewarded by it. I truly am. Johnny, it is always a pleasure. <laughs> and to your audience, thank you for allowing me my say and appreciate you tuning in today. Johnny, absolutely always a pleasure. Thank you for allowing me on your platform. Great pleasure, too. We're going to do uh, INF Extra 2, Misty, and, uh, excuse me, INF Extra 2, INF Final Extra in this order, and the last thing will be M42 Misty. Thanks for joining Don Newsom and I on Inalienable and Free, Voice of the Coalition. As we go about developing our new organization, the Coalition for Planetary Empowerment, we hope you will consider the importance of taking part in the electoral processes of your government and asserting the rights you have to vote for the companies you respect and love by casting your ballot as a shareholder or as a consumer with what you buy. We hope soon to make this possible through a social network responsive to your needs to dialogue about your rights as a citizen, but also to be able to effectively act in concert with like-minded colleagues to find representatives of government and business executives We'll hear your voice and appreciate your message. See you soon. This is Johnny Blue Star. Imagine a dark night. The wind is crisp and cool. The sky cloudless and majestic. Perhaps you are walking alone or with a loved one. Scattered about the night sky are thousands upon thousands of points of light. Look above you, friends of this restless planet. Out there into the night sky, unknown worlds await. Beauty behind imagination, intelligence beyond comprehension, life in its infinite forms and variations, yet all from the same seed, the same fundamental vibration. A cosmic tapestry of infinite light, yet each thread unique and indispensable. Look above you, out into the vastness of the night sky, for your destiny lies out there, somewhere among the stars.
Oh.